Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, today I'm talking with Jeff Morris, author of Tomorrow's End. It's an epic, philosophical, sci-fi horror story, and it's the author's debut novel and a fantastic start to a series that promises to entertain, horrify, enlighten, and expand the minds. The setting, the characters, the philosophic conflict, the battles, everything combines for an explosive, action-packed narrative. It's really quite unlike anything you've probably ever read before. Before we get started, let's get the inside scoop on Jeff. Jeff Morris is a 10-time award-winning author. He has garnered much acclaim for his debut novel, Tomorrow's End. He not only won a prestigious Dragonfly Book Award, but a feathered quill, and received multiple five-star reviews from many websites. Jeff was a philosopher and a graduate from seminary studies before taking writing courses in college. To learn more about Jeff Morris and his books, visit his website at grmorrisbooks.com. Well, hi, Jeff. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. I'm glad to be here. I thought your book, Tomorrow's End, was phenomenal. Can you tell our listeners what it's all about? You know, I've been thinking about this question, and I believe the best way to answer it would be with giving basic ideas, elements of the story, to kind of give a general idea of what it's about and go from there. So that being said, it surrounds this kid named Kevin. And this kid, if you could imagine this kid, he's 16 years old, and he's the savior of all of existence. And when I say all of existence, I'm talking all the multiverse, all the aliens, everything. And there is a small faction of aliens that believe that he's the savior of everything, while the vast majority of all of existence, they all believe in the prophecy that says that he's the destroyer of everything. Mm. So, of course... You have the vast majority of people trying to kill him. And we're talking killing him from birth. So he lives in this life where he has an abusive stepfather. And he lives in his parents' basement locked up. And he's trained since birth to be the savior. And, of course, he's going to believe that life's not fair, obviously. Mm -hmm. So some stuff happens. The crap hits the wall. And he comes across this demonic-looking alien that tells him, oh, by the way, you are the savior of all of his existence. So, of course, he doesn't believe it. He's not (laughs) going to believe something like that, because he's going to believe this is just nonsense. And he's been told his whole life that he's the savior of all of existence. But he's also been sheltered, and like I said, he's been hunted since he was born. And one of the things about being the savior is the ability to control your mind. Now, in order to control your mind, you have to at least believe in an epistemological way that the mind is the greatest importance, meaning that it can dominate the material world. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to do that, he has to be convinced that his epistemology is wrong. There's a lot of people that have a backwards epistemology. And let me see if I can describe that in the best way I can. So suppose you were to look at a door and you make the argument that the door exists. But then you say, I'm not convinced that my eyes do. Of course, that would seem ridiculous. 
but this is the kind of backwards epistemology that people have. And what I mean by epistemology, epistemology basically is a theory of knowledge. It's how we come to know or believe certain ideas. It's the method in which we come to know something. So if the method in which you come to know something is on a hierarchy that's backwards, it's basically therefore wrong. I'll demonstrate how this could be a problem. So if you were to go watch a magic show and you were to say, boy, I'm really convinced David Copperfield actually sawed that woman in half. And then once it's revealed to you, it's purely magic and you were fooled. And then you were to go, well, I'm convinced that he actually did cut her in half. And there's something wrong with my eye. I'm going to go have my eyes checked. That would be ridiculous. So it's more compelling and it should be a part of your epistemological hierarchy that you are more convinced that your eyes exist than what your eyes are seeing. And the hierarchy also could be described as that which is less likely to be fooled. So it's harder to fool the idea that your eyes exist than a magician showing, oh, by the way, here's something, and now I just fooled you. So then you have to ask the question, what is above the eyes on the hierarchy? Well, the mind is actually on a higher hierarchy because every single time you make an evaluation of something, you're coming to a logical conclusion of that thing. So when you make the claim, I believe that that woman was sawed in half, you're coming to a logical conclusion based upon your mind. Hmm. So your mind is the least likely to be fooled. It can still be wrong, mind you, Mm -hmm. but it's higher on the epistemological hierarchy. Now, there's even something higher than that. What would be higher than that would be essentially proper reasoning, meaning something in which is outside yourself that is objective that is most likely not to be wrong. And that would be something that exists outside of yourself that you could point to a sort of barometer that you could use to determine whether or not your ideas are correct. And that would be essentially like logic. Okay. Some people would say, well, the laws of logic are just concepts that are constructed by individual humans. Well, here's the reason why I don't believe that's the case. The laws of logic, for example, aren't human-made constructs because you can distinguish something which humans have made versus something that has been discovered by whether or not you can change it and it still make coherent sense. For example, the laws of logic are like mathematics. So you can't simply change the idea that I'm going to go ahead and now make it to where one plus one equals potato. (laughs) It's incoherent. So there's a difference between certain aspects of mathematics and logic that obviously humans did make, like the aesthetics of mathematics, like what the number one looks like, Mm -hmm. the language that we use to describe the pattern which exists in the universe. So things like logic and maths are essentially part of what existence is, but the way we describe that our experience, of, of course, is invented, and we can change that. In other words, we can change what the number one looks like, but it wouldn't change the fact that this thing and this other thing is two things. Mm-hmm. And we could describe that in any way we can. We could change that, but we cannot change the basic fact of the universe or the patterns. So these are the kinds of ideas that Kevin must adopt if he is going to put the mind on the highest hierarchy and then thereby control the mind to gain his sort of power of the mind. So Robert is the Obi-Wan and the Morpheus who trains him throughout it to control these abilities 
after eating basically the reshaped apple from the Garden of Eden that grants him his powers, which of course was used to stiffen Adam and Eve's powers that they initially were created with, as it were. Right. One of the things that I wanted to do in this book was create a very unique idea. I like stories that have a very deep meaning and a very original stories also. One of the underlying ideas of this book is the idea that life's fair. Of course, on the surface, that sounds completely absurd. We have very good reason to believe that life is completely unfair. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that Robert says, okay, but what if it was? And I try to make the case and give the devil his due that life is completely unfair so that I make a what's called a steel man. What a steel man is, is taking the person's position, like your opponent's position or the opposite position and make the best possible case for that position against your own. Oh, okay. So I think I'm going to show essentially what's called the problem of evil in such a grandiose way that you're going to be convinced at the offset that life is completely unfair. And then I'm going to pull the rug out from underneath you and say, oh, by the way, it's not. It is fair. And that's the kind of reveal that Robert shows to him that even though we have demons that can possess people, you have torture, you have all these things, you have people that throw babies in dumpsters, you have the Nazis by which I bring up, you have the Holocaust, you have all these horrible things that would leave someone to believe that life is completely unfair. And then I say, yeah, but, and then I bring up all these examples where, by the way, it is fair, here's how it's fair. And most people have certain ideas that are very destructive. They seem to get these basic assumptions about the world like they're gospel. Like, oh, by the way, I didn't choose to live this life. And you see in movies all the time, which always bothered me, where it's a constant running uh, statement. Well, I didn't choose to be a hero. I didn't choose this life. And you hear that everywhere. And it's like, well, people seem to assume that's true without even questioning it. And without questioning certain ideas can be very dangerous. You should at least question basic assumptions. And if you don't, you can run into all sorts of problems, especially if they're identifiers. Let's say you identify as an alcoholic. Now you're basically a victim based upon who you identify as. Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's just who I am. So you don't realize the kind of position you could put yourself that could be very damaging if you don't at least question certain ideas about yourself. Basically, how it turns out is Kevin goes through all this extensive training, gets all these ideas from Robert, and gets these powers, and he fights the big bad at the end, and it goes from there. And so that's basically kind of a nutshell what the book's about. There's so many different layers. How did you come up with this actual storyline? The way it started is was, so if you can imagine I'm like this teenager in high school, and I'm playing these role-playing games, and I'm generating all these ideas from being like the game master, the person that actually does the role-playing games back in high school. Mm -hmm. And I found myself enjoying telling stories. So you might find this interesting, but I don't really like reading. (laughs) I'm not a fan. (laughs) I do like movies, and I do like telling stories. So I said, you know what? I might as well write a book about certain ideas I have about these characters that we've come up with, me and some people that do these role-playing games. Mm -hmm. So I took these characters, and I put them in certain situations, And I wrote a 700 to 800 page book. And of course, it was just atrocious. And as life went on, I came to these epiphanies in my life. 
certain things happened where I was like, this isn't fair. Life's not fair. Like, I would try as I would to go down a certain path in my life, and I sort of blamed God for it. It's like, mm-hmm. I used to believe in this idea that God was like this puppet master, like, I'm doing this for your own good. And it's like, that's not fair. I want to be able to run my own life, right? right? I don't. What if I want to run my life into the ground? Who are you to control my life, right? And rather than just assuming at that point, well, God doesn't exist because life is not fair. Rather than coming to that conclusion, I said, well, wait a minute. I can't just simply do that. That's not a very good argument. So I examined that, and I came to an epiphany that, wait a minute, after studying philosophy and studying how the world works, doing some comparative religion study and studying really deep into certain ideas and thinking deep about subjects, I said, maybe life is fair. The way I describe it to people is imagine you have this set of dominoes, right? And there's this idea of determinism versus free will. And determinism says there's a bunch of dominoes and the laws of physics determines the dominoes and they all fall and they all hit one another. And there's no free will about it. They just all fall down. Mm-hmm. And you don't have any free will. There's no choice in the matter. That's just how the world works. You're just molecules in motion going to the beat of the laws of physics. And I looked at the evidence of that and I said, wow, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this idea is true. But then you look at free will and you go, well, there's a lot of evidence that free will is true. So then how do you come to the conclusion and pair up those ideas and say they are both true? How do you compartmentalize that? Well, my hypothesis is, what if not only did you choose the first domino, you chose all the dominoes. In other words, you got ahead of the first dominoes and knocked them all down yourself. Mm. And that's how I describe it basically in my book. There's more to it, obviously, than that. Right. And it goes deeper. Than, but that's kind of the basic idea of how free will and determinism can coexist. Yeah. So I want to go back to that. You don't like reading. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard before, if you've read any books about writing, they always say you've got to read a lot of books to be a good writer. And you just kind of blew yeah. that whole theory out of the water. <laughs> I did. So it's not necessarily true. I went to school for it and I read a lot of books on how to compose sentences and how to describe things, how to write a fight scene. One of the books I recommend is called How to Write the Fight Right, and it describes how to put together a good fight scene. Hmm. So that's one of the things I struggled with, because a lot of people, in my observations, seem to get it wrong, because you don't want to go essentially blow by blow. You want to do it in a way that's descriptive, but not like boring. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So when people say you have to read a lot of books, that's not necessarily true. You could still become a very good kung fu fighter. If all you did was get taught by Bruce Lee, but you never actually got in a fight. Hmm. You sparred with Bruce Lee, but you still never got in a real fight. Now, you could probably be a better fighter if you actually fought, but you could still be pretty good if all you did was essentially spar, which is essentially a method of fighting, with the best fighter there ever was. I think you did a little more than pretty good, but yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. (laughs) You might be surprised to learn that I typically don't like horror movies either. Really? So, really, I'm not a big fan. I mean, I like some. From reading my book, you might gather that like, I'm this huge horror and gore fan. I'm not. <laughs> um, right? When I watch a horror movie, I kind of view horror movies as, oh, these are just cool-looking monsters. 
Like, yeah. I think they're cool looking. But one of the things I don't like about horror movies is a lot of the really big supervillains, like the monsters and stuff in it, mm-hmm. are so smug and they like they win. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They never get their comeuppance. I wanted to create a story where like they get their comeuppance and you have like superheroes going, well, I'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that would be a cool idea. And I was like, I haven't seen that before. I got to write that. Yeah. That's what you do. If you haven't read or seen a story that you want to, then you have to do it yourself. So it's been a lengthy journey with Tomorrow's End. Did you like write it in high school and then put it away and then take it out again 20 years later? Or did you keep going back to it over the years? How did it actually come to be published? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the way it worked was I did one go around where it's like 700 pages, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I would add certain scenes to it. I would put certain ideas into the book and it fleshed it out. Mm. When I first put it out there, this was back in the day where I tried to put it to an editor, actually do the primary way of getting publishing to the main publishing houses. And they, of course, rejected it. And I don't blame them because it was basically trash. There was way too much info dumping. And they liked the idea, but they said it was poorly executed, basically. Hmm. So I was like, I have to fix this. And I'm the type of person who will take the criticism as long as the criticism is valid. In other words, if you're going to make the case that the writing is bad, you're going to have to make at least a cogent argument. Mm -hmm. So, And they did do, in fact, that. Because there's certain rules to the way people do things. With writing, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. There's a way to begin a story, there's a way to have a middle, and there's a way to have an ending. And if you don't follow certain processes, you're going to end up with a bad story. Mm-hmm. You can be this person that goes out there and goes on a limb and tries to make this, oh, well, it doesn't really have a beginning, or do something really weird. The chances of you actually making a good book are slim to none. There are certain elements that appear to be objective in storytelling that a story must have in order to be entertaining. You talked a little bit about Kevin and Robert, and I really enjoyed their relationship, especially the witty banter between the two of them, the back and forth. So we know Kevin kind of represents the savior in the story, but what about Robert? He's a metaphor. Robert's kind of the metaphor of God the Father in the sense that he's so old, he knows basically everything. So in a sense, he's all-knowing. And he's connected to the technology which observes current time and future time, as it were, because they're all connected to the past, present, and future. So he's almost timeless, but not exactly in the sense of what God would be, but he knows enough to where he knows what's going to happen. Do you get any kind of pushback on the religious aspect? I mean, I know clearly it's fiction, but I don't know, you never know how some people might react to it. Right. I put a disclaimer in the front of the book mm-hmm. where this is kind of written not to say this is how reality is. The first point of a book is to entertain. Mm-hmm. That's the primary focus. If you're not entertained, then it's a failure. It's not to be preachy. It's not to give this sort of message or anything like that. It should be to entertain. But secondarily, I think I'm entertained by a book that makes me think and a book that stays with you. So that's the kind of secondary point of the book. And it's kind of like an alternate history. So obviously there's things in the book that I had to take certain liberties. Mm -hmm. There is no guy named Kevin. There is no guy named Robert in this situation. There's things that I obviously do not believe that are in the book. It's merely for entertainment. And there's certain things I had to say in order to create the possibility of the story happening. 
I have got a little pushback, but I try to put things in the story to counterbalance that. There's a character named Darren. Her love interest in the scene, Thomas, picks up a book, and she starts describing how he's upset that this book depicted the Nazis in a particular way that isn't true. And then Darren points out, by the way, it was in the fiction section. It's science fiction for a reason. Right. I'm not saying it's a nonfiction book. If I was to say it was true, I would label it nonfiction, not sci-fi horror of all things. Right. Now, you mentioned Darren. Can you tell us a little bit about her? I feel like she had a, a lead role, but was kind of in the background, at least in this part of the story. Yeah, just about every character in the story is kind of in the background because I wanted to lay down the foundation of the sort of universe that I'm building. Mm -hmm. So Darren is essentially the love interest in the whole thing. And I'm showing basically how she was born and her ultimate connection to Kevin and how they're living sort of parallel lives with sort of different experiences, but having kind of similar experiences in one sense where they're having to deal with all of this, evil that's actually materializing so you have the darkness which is evil itself coalescing into our own world and the darkness is basically kind of like the blob from the movie the blob where it's hell on earth coming into the world so she has to deal with a lot of that and of course kevin does too so there's things that they both deal with the main villain of this story but yeah she's the love interest and uh, i have plans for all these characters and expounding upon them in other books okay good I want to hear more from her. I liked her. Now, obviously, this is the first book. And is it going to be a trilogy or a series? Or have you worked that out yet? I haven't worked that out. It's People have asked me that question. And like I said, it started out as a 700-page book, right? Mm -hmm. I already have the general backbone in mind, meaning that I've already figured out how it's going to begin, how it's going to end, and some of the certain ideas in the middle. There's certain ideas that I'm like, oh, I need to tell this part of the story. As long as the book is now, it's like 400 some pages. I probably had to cut a good 50 pages out of what's there now. Oh, wow. And of course, I hated to kill the darlings, as they put it. I hated it. (laughs) If you can imagine, I started the book with this massive 30-page wildfire fight scene. I really put that out there. I was like, I'm going to make this the awesomest fight scene ever. And I really loved that scene. And I put it at the very beginning. But then I took the whole thing out. The reason I did that was when you look at how a story is constructed, you want to have a spike at the very beginning of the story, but you want to have all your best stuff at the very end. Mm. Because the end of a story is sort of the conclusion to an idea, and everything is leading up to that. And it sort of ruined the book to have all the best stuff, because when I first wrote it, I was like, this is my favorite part of the book. And it's in the very beginning. Yeah. Like, I can't have that. That doesn't work. <laughs> How are people going to so want to read more if I put everything in the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it'll be a letdown. Cause it's like all this great stuff in the beginning. Plus what I realized is books are a little different than movies in the sense that with movies, it's a little less boring cause you can see everything and you see all the fights going on and everything. And you're more willing to watch that because of all the visuals than a super extensive fight scene at the very beginning of the book because you don't relate to the characters. You don't really understand what's going on. Right. So it doesn't really work that way. If you're going to put a fight scene in there, it's got to be pretty brief. It has to be enough to grab the reader. 
Yeah. So you've got a general map of where your story is going, but do you let the characters take control as you're writing? Do they ever surprise you when you're writing? <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> the reason why I love it is I'm kind of like Robert in that sense, because even though he knows everything, he has to say certain things in order to get the outcome that he knows is inevitable at the end of the whole adventure. Mm -hmm. So I know certain characters, what they are going to do. So there's certain events that are going to happen because I know they're going to do certain things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can explain this correctly. Like I know my characters so well, I know how the end of the story is going to be. So it doesn't really matter the events I put in front of them because I know they're going to behave in a certain manner. You know what they're going to do. You know what they're going to think. You know what they're going to say. Yeah. yeah. I'm so very connected with the characters because I've been dealing with them for like 20 years. Yeah. Uh, knowing what, exactly what they would do in a particular situation. So it's not like they surprise me. It's more like I'm going to put them in this situation. I know what's going to happen and it'll be cool to write it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do know your characters after 20 years. Kind of like family, huh? Yeah. My favorite two main characters are Wildfire and the Dragon. Mm. Um, the Dragon is the ultimate villain. Because if you're going to have the ultimate hero, you're going to have to have the ultimate villain. And the ultimate villain has to be so incredibly powerful that you doubt that the hero is going to be able to defeat him. Yeah. Because in every story, it's, it's like, well, of course the hero is going to win in the end. Because the hero always does. But the <laughs> question is, you may know that, but the, what makes a great story, in my estimation, is when you question that, when you go, yeah, I think the hero is going to win, but how in the world is he going to win when the villain is this powerful? It's like now you don't believe he can when eventually he does. If he does, I'm not going to give anything away. But if he does, it's like you're surprised by it because it's like, wow, I can't believe he won. Because the default position is you think the hero is going to win. So you have to combat that with making a basically a super powerful villain to make you question that idea. And that's what the dragon is. But it's not a typical dragon like in fantasy stories, right? The dragon isn't actually a dragon in the medieval sense. Okay. So what the dragon essentially is, it's a biological creation created by all of the aliens putting their technology together and coming up with a creature that has every single piece of alien DNA in him in order to defeat Kevin. Mm. And what about Wildfire? So... Wildfire is a unique character. In the book, you'll notice that she actually eats bullets. She'll take a live round and eat it, which is amazing. I want to create something that's truly wild. So I really like the idea of you have this character that is using a sort of evil as a tool, mm -hmm. and you, you're scaring the villains, and the villains are afraid to approach this good guy. She's the anti-hero to the extreme. So I'm really looking forward to writing that story. I mean, talk about a strong female lead. This girl eats bullets for breakfast. Yeah. Now, another element I found unique to Tomorrow's End is how it's promoted on your website as philosophical fiction. And I, I just love that. I mean, to me, it says just that. It's not fluffy fiction, but more food for thought. What was the idea behind that? Yeah, the branding idea is my favorite movie of all time is The Matrix 1 and 2. I really hated the third one. But the first two Matrix movies hit me so hard. I was like, wow, that is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Mm. And what was interesting is I had my book all written before it came out. And I'm like, wow, that's almost exactly like my book. <laughs> I was like, that's very interesting. <laughs> it 
there is obviously a lot of differences, but there is obviously a lot of similarities. And so I took some of the ideas from the Matrix also at the time, and I put it like the cover of my book. I put some of the design there and I pay homage to the Matrix in my book with certain phrases mm-hmm. and really big fan of philosophy. And I think if you have a philosophic mind, you will tend to view reality in the correct way and you'll be less likely to be fooled. You'll be able to go on the direction of truth. And there's some very interesting ideas that are in philosophy that you could apply to certain novels and say, hey, here's an interesting idea that you could create a story based off of and say, okay, I'm going to interject this idea. That's essentially what The Matrix did. Mm. It ran with solipsism, and it created a whole movie franchise based upon that idea. And I think that was brilliant, and that's essentially what I'm doing as well. Okay. Wow. You mentioned briefly the art. Tell us about your cover art. Are you an illustrator as well? Yeah, I've been drawing since I was in high school and drawing comics and some art here and there. And But the problem is I'm colorblind. Mm. So, so I've been able to draw basically anything. And the only thing I couldn't do was paint. I didn't understand why, which was very weird. That's one of the things that got me into philosophy, where I thought my entire life that I could see color. And to this day, I can convince people that I can see color. But I went to a doctor and he's like, nope, you have scars on your retinas. You can't see color. Huh. Again, the reason I didn't design it, although I could have, as far as make the whole thing, was because I couldn't see color. So I said, well, I'm going to have to outsource it. And that person said, okay, what do you want? So I basically wrote it out in back and forth communication, every single thing that I wanted it to look like. Wow. So the actual ideas that are on the cover and the back, from what the colors look like to how the thing looks, to the arches of everything... We spent several months getting it to look exactly the way I wanted. Wow. It's fantastic. You did a great job. So what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm not working on anything. I'm trying to get my life together. I'm a very busy guy trying to pay off bills. And hopefully I can sell some of this so I can get out and do the things I want in order to do this full time and write a bunch of books and just not have to worry about anything. Yeah, That would be ideal. But my next plan is to write the wildfire story. That's mm-hmm. my next plan. Okay. So I'll give a sneak peek to it. The idea is she has this power that she gets from the dragon indirectly where it reverses the parallels like pain and pleasure, mm. where it actually reverses the polarities of part of the dragon's abilities where when she gets hit with something, not only does it not hurt her, it gives her actual physical pleasure and it gives her power. So if you were to throw her into the sun, thinking you killed her, you've actually not done that. You've actually made her really powerful. <laughs> and but really happy. Yeah. <laughs> and really happy. So you can kind of see that in the beginning of the book, where yeah. she enjoys napalm showers. She jumps into a big old avalanche of rubble. <laughs> she explodes everything and you know, dances around in it. And I thought that would be a very fun book to write and how she came to be. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay, yeah. So no timeline, just as time allows at this point. Yeah, as time allows. Right now, it's more like I'm doing other things and putting up the website, adding some product and getting the marketing out there to at least try to get the word out for this book. And then after I'm all done with that, I can kind of work on the next one. Yeah, okay. What advice would you give to aspiring authors based on your journey? Yeah, that's a good question. The best advice I could give to somebody is counter to what a lot of people say, and that's right to market. And I think that's trash. There's some arguments in favor of that because you want to write that which a lot of people will like. Of course, that's great advice. But the problem is your heart's not going to be in it. 
if you don't enjoy the story you're telling, it's not going to come out good and it'll come out in your writing. Right. Yeah, I don't you like can, that advice. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's the worst. And it's besides, if you do that, then everybody's going to be doing that. And so how many stories do we need about, let's say, vampires? <laughs> right. In one sense, that's correct. But sometimes it's the delivery, too, because you can make the best version of a particular vampire, even though it's kind of been told a particular way. But if you put a unique spin on it, mm -hmm. that you can also do that. But you need to write the topics in which you love because you will enjoy doing it. You'll be less burnt out. If you don't like the stuff you're writing, neither will anybody else. Right. But of course, somebody probably will, but it won't be as good as it possibly could be if you were to write the story that you wanted to tell. On the other hand, you do not want to write something so bizarre that the market won't like it. So you have to know your audience. So it's not completely false in the sense that you have to be aware of what people like. And as long as you know the underlying rules of how to tell a good story, you can basically write any idea that you want because mm -hmm. it'll still fall in line with a good story. Right. Well, that's good advice. And, and maybe don't take 20 years. But if you do, that's okay, too, right? <laughs> when I was finally done, I was like, I got that over. <laughs> Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you stopping by this afternoon and telling us a little bit about you and your work, Tomorrow's End. All right. Thank you a lot. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Jeff Morris, author of Tomorrow's End. For more information on Jeff and his work, visit his website at grmorrisbooks.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. 